I mean, certainly as rates are going up, uh, that we should be getting more demand uh, for bonds. But when they, when the, the velocity of move is so intense to the upside, nobody really wants to jump in there. They can really spike up to levels that uh, cause a credit crunch and a, a recession. I'm hoping that uh, the economy will slow uh, some without an outright recession and that inflation will continue to moderate and that will stabilize the, the situation. But uh, we are seeing aspects of a debt crisis which are very unsettling. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ed Yardeni. Ed is the president and chief investment strategist of our Yardeni Research. Ed has been on Wall Street for over 25 years as a chief economist and a chief investment strategist in multiple uh, houses. He's also worked at the Federal Reserve and U.S. Treasury. He's also a frequent commentator on the financial media, such as uh, CNBC. Ed, great to have you with us today. How are you doing? Just fine, Alan. Good stuff. Well, before we get into the meat of the conversation, we always like to get our guests to give a sense of their background in markets. Obviously, you've been around uh, analyzing the markets and the economy for many years. So if you could just give us a sense on how you got started in economics and uh, as an economist and then transitioning into in investment strategy. No, I'm sorry you want to do that because it's going to sound like I can't keep a job. <laughs> uh, I went to Cornell uh, for undergraduate, um, studied economics and um, government. And then I went to Yale um, and did a uh, first uh, a master's in international relations and then uh, a PhD in, in economics. I studied under uh, James uh, Tobin, uh, he's a Nobel Prize winner, and I I was there, I graduated six years after Janet Yellen graduated from Yale, and uh, I, I owe her uh, a debt of thanks because um, uh, she wrote these very copious uh, notes from Tobin's class, and uh, they were subsequently Xeroxed and sort of became the unofficial textbook of uh, Tobin's class. So she got me through 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 Yale. Of course, she's a liberal, where I tend to be more conservative, at least on economic 
uh, policy matters. Graduated from uh, from Yale, uh, went on to uh, for a stint at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for a, a year. Had a uh, office with no windows. Uh, I think I had a polyester white shirt uh, that I wore on a regular basis and kept some ties in the office. Uh, wrote some memos um, on the savings and loan industry, which was uh, in crisis uh, uh, back back then. And um, well, actually, it was it was pre-crisis. Uh, but uh, just kind of monitored their deposit flows. And those memos, I think, are still somewhere in, in the basement of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and some uh, f- file, I, I suspect. Uh, then I got a call from a headhunter um, on Wall Street who uh, said there's a job opening at E.F. Hutton. You know, when E.F. Hutton uh, talks, people listen was their motto. And um, so I, I went to, to E.F. Hutton and as a uh, as a kind of a junior economist working for the senior economist, and the senior economist was very kind. He uh, he, he moved on after a couple of years, and so I, at the age of twenty eight, I became uh, the chief economist of E.F. Hutton. Uh, from there, I moved uh, to uh, Prudential, uh, which was called Prudential Beach at the time. It was called Beach at the time, and then it became Prudential Beach. Uh, and then uh, from there, um, I got a job at uh, C.J. Lawrence, where at Hyman. I was the chief economist, uh, re- renowned uh, economist, and so I t- took over that that spot and uh, stayed there for for, for some time. Uh, it it kind of morphed into Deutsche Bank Securities uh, as Deutsche Bank bought uh, C.J. Lawrence, and then uh, after that, I uh, went back to Prudential uh, for for a couple of years. Um, stayed uh, th- then that kind of ended my career uh, directly on Wall Street. I for a couple of years, I worked for Oak Associates in Akron, Ohio, managing money, and I continued to write my um, re- do my research, and uh, we s- uh, sold it uh, to uh, our institutional accounts that I had contact with uh, when I was on Wall Street, and then I decided just to go off on my own in 2007. Uh, we uh, we were virtual from the get go, uh, so I tell everybody since the pandemic, welcome to our world. Uh, We've all been working from home since 2007, and uh, here I am, um, president of uh, Yardeni Research, and uh, we have um, over 4,000 individuals at uh, major institutions uh, around the world that uh, get our research, uh, and we have a uh, product for individual investors. If I may give a quick commercial, it's uh, y- y- Yardeni Research, uh, sorry, Yardeni Quick Takes at yardeni.com for individuals. And uh, I wish I could give you some cough drops. I hope you're... <laughs> Hopefully that won't persist. No, good. Well, great. That, that's a, uh, I mean, a, a, a great uh, history of, of some of the big names on Wall Street, I guess. Um, and I guess, uh, as you mentioned, you've you worked as an economist, uh, both on the policy side and um, on, on the buy side. Um, you know, I guess one of the things that's been interesting about the current cycle is how how wrong again the economics profession seems to have been about the uh, the economy this year. You know, starting the year there was a lot of pessimism around, and Jamie Dimon talking about that whatever it, hurricane or the gale hurricane, that was appra- yeah. approaching that hasn't that was that was May of last year, sure. Yeah, yeah. So so we obviously had a bit of a, a wobble with the banking issue in March, but what's your take? I mean. Why has the economics profession got it wrong again? And, and w- 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 what's interesting about this cycle that the economy is so resilient? 
Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, fortunately, I, I, I think I got, got it mostly right, not completely right, but uh, uh, I actually started arguing early last year in uh, early 2022 that the economy was in a recession, but I explained that um, I thought it was a rolling recession, uh, otherwise known as a mid-cycle slowdown, a, gr a growth recession. The idea was that uh, the Fed was raising interest rates, which is what uh, got most economists to start forecasting a recession. They figured that if the Fed was going to be aggressive in raising interest rates uh, and if inflation was going to be persistent rather than transitory, then the result would be um, a, a credit crunch and, uh, and a recession. I, I didn't see it that way. I, I, I said that uh, for starters, we have a housing recession, but we have to be exact about that. It was a single family housing recession. Housing starts for single families took a dive. Multifamilies remained very strong because developers and landlords realized that there was a lot of demand for uh, for, for, for rental properties uh, for apartments. And so um, that's been very strong uh, just until recently. Uh, in August, we saw a big drop in that. And that may be the rolling recession now rolling into into multifamily housing because they, they might have over overbuilt uh, in, in that uh, regard. Uh, then um, here in the U.S., we were locked down during the pandemic in March and April, and we all got cabin fever. I guess we avoided COVID, but we got cabin fever for sure. And when the lockdowns were lifted, um, we all needed to do something to make ourselves feel better. And, uh, and the wonderful things about Americans, maybe lots of other people, is when uh, we're happy, we spend money, and when we're depressed, we spend even more money. And so it was uh, so we ran out and started uh, going on a, a shopping spree, a, a buying spree. Couldn't get really much in the way of services because there were still social distancing requirements. And so we bought a lot of goods. And um, basically, inventories were depleted uh, by uh, late 2020. Uh, retailers uh, ordered a bunch more uh, merchandise uh, from China and other places that all got jammed in the ports of L L.A. and there weren't enough trucks to bring it all. By the time it all arrived, the consumers basically said, no mas, we, we don't really need any more goods. We have enough. And uh, they went on a buying binge for services. They, they, they went traveling. They went to restaurants. They went stayed at hotels, motels. Uh, more recently, they went to Taylor Swift concerts uh, or, or went to see uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer at the movies. So the, the retailers got stuck with a lot of merchandise and had to discount it, which brought inflation down quite sharply at least in the in the goods area. Now the rolling recession is rolling into commercial real estate. And um, look, I'm not saying that uh, we couldn't still have an economy-wide recession, but there's been a lot of economic correcting in, uh, in, in some important uh, cyclical sectors. Very good. And I mean, one of the things people have been, um, I suppose, focused on trying to grapple with is this kind of the, the, what what are the lags for for monetary policy and different views on this and you know for a while Powell was suggesting maybe some research that the the lags might have sped up but you know the, as the expression is they are long and variable so hard to hard to forecast what's what's your sense on when we should feel the maximum impact of the tightening we we've ex experienced well, already uh, as uh, as I just indicated I think we've already seen uh, that the impact was quite immediate in, in the housing market. And um, I'm seeing some signs that the single-family housing market may be bottoming. I don't think it's going to recover much with mortgage rates going from 7 to 8%. 8%. Uh, so we've had that uh, happen pretty quickly. We're, uh, 
we're actually seeing a rolling recovery in 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 goods. Uh, the latest manufacturing uh, survey, the manufacturing purchasing manager survey, uh, suggests that um, we're starting to see uh, some pickup in uh, in manufacturing. Uh, the this the the so-called MPMI, uh, the manufacturing purchasing managers index, is still below fifty, uh, but it's uh, it, it's actually been uh, rising towards that level. I think it got to 49 in, in, in September. So it's, uh, it's been improving. Um, uh, but uh, the long and variable lag is certainly going to be hitting commercial uh, real estate uh, for a long, and, long time, and it won't be that variable. I think it's already started. And uh, look, uh, a lot of uh, commercial real estate uh, was, was financed at uh, near zero interest rates, and some of that is variable, and some of that has to be refinanced. And the math just isn't going to work with interest rates now uh, substantially uh, higher. And so we will see a lot of defaults. We'll see some significant losses uh, for, for the banks, uh, kind of reminiscent of uh, what happened uh, in uh, around 1990 when we had the savings and loan crisis. Uh, again, I pointed out that I, I had a head start on looking at the savings and loan industry when I was at the Fed. So I, I, I was sort of on top of that situation um but it took a long time but we did, we had a we had a minor recession back then didn't last very long and and then it kind of weighed on the economy for a while so that may be what we we have up, up ahead here uh the consumer of, uh, clearly is the the key question and is the key reason that we haven't had an economy-wide recession and uh, there are uh, folks out there who still think that uh, consumers piled up this uh, excess savings, so-called, uh, during the pandemic, and that they're running out of that, and, and as soon as they run out of that, they'll have to retrench. They'll have they'll have to cut back. Uh, consumers face some other headwinds, such as uh, student loan uh, payments have uh, uh, started once again, and so uh, that could uh, potentially weigh on the consumer. But meanwhile, the labor market remains really strong. It's it's hard to get a, a recession when. Uh, Workers are getting jobs, and we just had a job openings uh, data for August that showed that there's plenty of jobs uh, that uh, are still available, uh, and so that uh, employment uh, still looks pretty good. And by the way, wages for the past several months have been rising faster than prices. didn't happen in August because of uh, energy prices, but the trend has been for an improving uh, real wage environment. Pretty good. And I guess uh, another interesting part of the, the puzzle that we've been grappling at the moment has been the behavior of long-term bond yields. And obviously for a long time, yield didn't really respond that much, in well, somewhat, but, but maybe not as much as expected in response to the Fed tightening. But, but more recently, we have started seeing uh, bond yields started to ratchet higher. So how do you see that? So what's driving that? And, and how do you see that playing out? Well, funny that you should ask. Uh, we're doing this uh podcast on October 4th and uh, just happened to have a um, op-ed on that in today's uh, Financial Times, and it's called uh, The Bond Vigilantes Are Back. Uh, I coined the uh, phrase Bond Vigilantes back in 1983, and the idea is that if uh, bond investors conclude that uh, fiscal and monetary policy is reckless, it's uh, too stimulative, it's too inflationary, uh, that's obviously not in their best interest. Uh, then uh, the uh, you know the, they basically send their friends the bond vigilantes to take over the uh, the credit markets. Now for a while there they they really couldn't do very much between the great financial crisis and the great virus crisis. 
uh, central bankers were buying bonds and uh, they were, you know, were lowering interest rates uh, close close to zero, at least to historical lows in the bond market. Uh, and as a result of that, um, they, they were trying to, the central banks were desperately trying to get inflation to go back up to 2%. Uh, but beware of what you wish for here. Inflation is much higher than that. And so the central bankers have had to reverse course and raise interest rates. As, as they've raised short-term rates, bond yields have kind of followed along. But then sometime last summer, summer of 2022 exactly, not 2023, but a while ago, the yield curve inverted, meaning that bond yields still went up, but not as rapidly as short-term interest rates because bond investors figured, you know, the, the Fed's doing it right. Uh, they're, they're aggressive. They're going to they're focused, laser focused on bringing inflation down. So, you know, if the Fed keeps going, something will break as it has in the past in the financial markets. There'll be a credit crunch, there'll be a recession. So it's okay to buy a bond at 4% when the a 10 year bond at 4%, uh, when the uh, two year uh, note is at 5%, because odds are the two year note's not going to stay there very long once the recession hits. And the inverted yield curve, of course, uh, uh, caused a lot of uh, forecasters to anticipate a recession. Well, and in fact, uh, the yield curve got it partly right. Uh, we had a banking crisis in March of this year. didn't last very long. The Fed came in and uh, squelched it with a, uh, contained it with a banking uh, liquidity facility. And uh, we didn't have a credit crunch. We didn't have a, a recession. Uh, but uh, recently, uh, this summer, uh, we've seen that the bond investors have become increasingly concerned not about uh, reckless monetary policy, but they've become concerned about reckless fiscal policy. As, as we know, uh, Fitch ratings downgraded U.S. government debt uh, back on August 1st, and um, uh, they, they really didn't tell us anything new. It just reminded everybody that uh, with all the spending programs that uh, had been enacted by the Biden administration in 2022, that uh, the outlook for outlays was uh, daunting. And meanwhile, there was no political will to uh, increase taxes. And so the deficit uh, suddenly in August on a 12-month basis was $2 trillion. And um, the auctions uh, for the Treasury's uh, securities uh, increased substantially. And uh, the, the bond uh, vigilantes came to the fore and said, okay, well, uh, we're not going to uh, buy bonds at 4%, especially if there's not going to be a recession. And we're going to need a lot more in order to buy all the supplies. So uh, as of our podcast, we're at 4.8%. That's been a, you know, a vertical ascent in, in, in the bond market. And um, basically, the bond, invest the bond vigilantes are saying, um, you know, if you folks in Washington don't do something to narrow this deficit, uh, we're going to push your bond yields up to whatever level it takes uh, to uh, get, your, get, get your attention. And of course, that would be by creating a, a, a debt crisis or at least a debt crunch uh, and, and a recession. So that's, that's where we are right now. And the, uh, it was interesting. Um, I think Barry Eichengreen had a paper that he presented at Jackson Hole about debt and, and debt sustainability. So, uh, and he was, he's been a guest on, on this podcast too. So we follow his work uh, uh, with interest. Uh, I guess it was interesting in itself that, that, Jack, that people at Jackson Hole were focused on debt dynamics in the, in the first place. And, and I guess the conclusions from his paper were, well, okay, maybe not kind of forecasting an, an imminent crisis, but certainly the uh, trajectory of travel didn't look good in the sense of if you look at, you know, the, the conditions normally in place for, for 
kind of reduction of debt levels and fiscal primary surpluses that 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 they're not in place now. Um, so the question is is how you you would get debt down and. His argument seems to be that we should just get used to uh, living with high levels of debt. But he did focus a lot on this equation that I guess economists look at, or, or the relationship between R and G, um, to, to to kind of infer whether debt is sustainable sustainable or not. I mean, how far away do you think we are from a kind of a a negative spiral of higher rates pushing up, you know, more debt repayments and then piling on more debt and all of that, and 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 and, and reaching a crisis at some point in the future? Well, we're 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 actually there. Uh, we we've been there for the for for probably the past year, uh, maybe past two years. Um, you know, we've accumulated a tremendous amount of debt uh, b- before the pandemic, uh, a lot more debt uh, during the pandemic, and now the deficits uh, remain uh, wide and are widening, uh, which is unsettling to see in an economy that's still growing. It's you know, the bond market really never had a problem with widening deficits in the past because they widened during recessions when other private, when private credit demands uh, were shrinking and when interest rates uh, were, were coming down as the Fed was, was fighting a, a, a recession. Uh, this time around, uh, the economy's uh, hanging in there quite well and the deficit's widening uh, because of uh, uh, fiscal uh, excesses. And so that's, uh, that's quite a change. And, and where we're having the 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 problem, this is not all because of uh, Biden's spending programs, which really haven't even kicked in yet. It's a lot of this has been Social Security uh, payments are ratcheted to inflation, so they've been ratcheted up. And then the big uh, problem is the interest ex- expense. Um, you know, all that uh, all that debt uh, is uh, generating uh, increasing interest uh, outlays by by the U.S. government, and that's something that's. Uh, non-discretionary, as they say. They, the government has to make those payments. And uh, we've seen uh, on a 12-month basis those payments double uh, since July of uh, 2022 to about $650 billion or so. And uh, they're, they're going straight up. So a good part of the deficit uh, here and now is, in fact, attributable to a rapidly rising uh, interest uh, costs. And uh, that's, uh, I think, got the bond vigilantes uh, particularly riled up because they realize that there's sort of a, a spiraling uh, debt problem uh, w- with regards to, uh, to to the government with no uh, political will to even recognize that problem or do anything about it. So there is this uh, right now, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist at heart, believe it or not. So I tend to believe that uh, it doesn't ha- necessarily have to end badly. Uh, I mean, you mentioned one economist. Uh, there's, the hedge fund community is also uh, convinced that we're going to have a debt crisis. Uh, Ray Dalio has talked about uh, a debt crisis, and uh, the idea is really quite simple. Um, you know, bond yields are going to go up to whatever level it takes to, to make bonds a, a, attractive again. I mean, it, certainly as rates are going up, uh, that we should be getting more demand uh, for bonds. But when they when the, the velocity of move is so intense to the upside, nobody really wants to jump in there. They can really spike up to levels that uh, cause a credit crunch and a, a recession. I'm hoping that uh, the economy will slow uh, some without an outright recession and that inflation will continue to moderate and that will s- stabilize this, the situation. But uh, we are seeing aspects of a debt crisis which are very uns- uh, unsettling. 
And do you think, I mean, it's it's a side question, but curious to get your perspective. Did the US Treasury miss a trick not issuing 100-year bonds like um, the likes of Austria and Argentina did back when rates were zero? Um, and now that their profile presumably is of the debt is kind of more near term. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I was always kind of wondering why the Treasury didn't take the opportunity of such low interest rates. You know, the 10-year Treasury yield got down to 0.5% in, in 2020, I think it was. Or, and, uh, well, you know, why not just refinance everything at uh, 10 years or 20 years or, as you said, a, a 100 years? And um, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I think Wall Street uh, told the Treasury that uh, they, they need to have a a range of maturities uh, it, to in order to uh, keep their government bond desks going. Uh, but here we are uh, with interest rates a lot higher, with uh, a lot more debt. Uh, we've calculated that uh, currently the Treasury is paying on average 2.5% on its uh, debt uh, as it's had to refinan- refinance it. 2.5% uh, is uh, not where the two-year note is right now. So it's at 5%. So as they have to continue to refinance their debt and accumulate more debt, uh, they are going to um, have more and more um, outlays uh, for net interest. Okay. And I mean, you touched on, you know, no political appetite to address this. Um, and it's interesting to think about, you know, some of the that's the, the political headwinds. Uh, on the one hand, you've, as you, you touched on Bidenomics and this kind of shift towards greater industrial policy, fis- fiscal activism in the US, which would suggest we would see ongoing deficits over time. And then obviously we're, we're in the middle of, of the usual logjam in, in, in Congress at the moment. So very hard to see how this would play out positively. But I mean, what is the end game? I mean, maybe as you say, the, our economy uh, goes into recession and that brings yields down. But if, if, if this debt issue was to roll on for a number of years, is it the case that, that we have to see much higher levels to precipitate some kind of sense of crisis, do you think, to get policymakers to, to act on deficits? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, we've, we've seen in the past that um, the, the policymakers uh, don't really res- respond to uh, changing policy on the economic side unless there's a crisis. We certainly uh, saw that uh, with the um, uh, great, great fin- financial crisis. Uh, but... Um, the bond vigilante's heyday was uh, actually back during the Clinton administration uh, when uh, James Carville, who was an advisor to Bill Clinton, uh, made him very aware of the power of the bond market. And in many ways, uh, the bond market's more powerful now because it's bigger. There's just been a lot more debt uh, and um, there's a lot more leverage in, in the economy. So it's, uh, it's, it's a clear and present uh, uh, danger. That frankly, I I didn't really I didn't see it uh, coming, uh, because I it's always been my view that uh, I'll worry about uh, debt when the when the uh, bond market worries about too much debt. Uh, in, in the past, uh, the bond market really didn't focus much on supply and demand uh, in the bond market, particularly not in the treasury market, because as I said, the, the deficits widened in recessions, and that was not a big deal, and then they narrowed during expansions. Uh, but uh, the bond market now, uh, I think really since August 1st, since Fitch uh, ratings lowered uh, the uh, downgraded uh, government debt, uh, the bond market now seems to be very much concerned about uh, the imbalance between uh, the supply 
of uh, securities and the demand. And the demand's been diminished because the Fed, instead of buying treasuries, is um, letting its portfolio uh, decline. It's uh, letting them uh, the bonds the bonds mature, uh, the, the the portfolio mature. And then, of course, the commercial banks have seen uh, some we- some weakness in their deposits, and so they're letting their bond portfolios uh, mature to raise funds to offset some of that weakness. So that leaves uh, domestic um, individual and institutional investors to buy treasuries and foreign investors. And there's a lot of questions about whether foreign investors have the appetite to to buy our securities. So it all it all adds up to a, a situation where the the elements of a debt crisis have suddenly appeared uh, uh, kind of out of, out of the blue, but they were actually, you know, hiding in plain sight all along. Yeah, interesting. There was a, a an article from uh, James Montier at GMO. There, I remember even a few months back, called um, "Slow Burning Minsky Moments," uh, and it was uh, kind of on that theme that the kind of the the debt level uh, preconditions for a Minsky moment were in place, if not the kind of immediate uh, dynamics, but but obviously the immediate dynamics are shifting. I guess the uh, going back to the Eichen Green paper, you know, w- w- in terms of debt sustainability, there's two sides of it. One is the interest rate, and the other side is is economic growth. Um, I guess the optimists might say, you know, AI might save us, and we could have a productivity boom. And economic growth could could end up being very strong. There's different views on this. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, again, our conversation has uh, clearly been on the pessimistic side with regards to the the, the debt issue. But uh, believe it or not, I, I'm I'm in that camp that believes that uh, growth will save us and that productivity will save us. I don't know if it's AI. I think it's a combination of technologies that will uh, boost productivity. I've been arguing that productivity uh, that that we are in the early stages. Of an early of a productivity growth uh, boom, uh, we had a productivity growth boom in the '50s and the '60s, another one in the '90s. This one has the potential for being uh, much much broader in, in scope because the technologies that are out there do lend themselves to solving a very significant problem we have in the economy here and around the world. There's a shortage of labor, there's a shortage of skilled labor. And so companies uh, really desperately need to increase the productivity of the workers they have. They need to uh, augment their skills with the t- uh, technology. And um, I think it's uh, artificial intelligence, it's um, robotics, auto- automation, uh, nanotechnology, uh, 3D manufacturing. There's just a host of uh, technologies that are very user-friendly, they're relatively uh, uh inexpensive, uh, and they do lend themselves to increasing productivity in a whole, just about every business. So from that perspective, almost every business now is a technology company. If if they don't make technology, they have to use technology. They have to spend a good part of their capital budgets on technology to increase their productivity. That being the case, uh, we may very well have um, a productivity boom. Uh, I mean, productivity uh, on a five-year trailing basis at an annual rate bottomed at 0.4% uh, back in 2015. It got all the way up to 1.6% um, right before the pandemic. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a quadruple increase uh, in uh, uh, productivity, and it's uh, it's all goes straight into real GDP growth. In other words, if productivity was adding 0.4%, suddenly it was adding 1.6%, and then the pandemic hit and everything got screwed up, um, people quit and hard to maintain p- 
productivity when people are quitting and you have to hire new people. But I think things are normalizing now, and I expect productivity, which is back to 1.6% on that uh, trailing basis that I just mentioned, uh, I think it's gone up to 3 three to 4%, uh, which sounds far-fetched, but that's the kind of uh, productivity booms we've had in the past. And if we get that, uh, that'll help a lot in uh, boosting growth. Because again, uh, if productivity is growing 3%, labor force growing 1%, that's 4, 4% real GDP. And I mean, it's it's always the great, I mean, everything in economics is difficult to forecast, I guess, but but productivity in particular, and it's often kind of treated as a kind of a residual. I mean, you've got the growth numbers and, and, the, pro, and the, the population growth. I mean, it's so hard to know, say, with, say McKinsey had a report out on, on AI saying it was going to boost productivity, I think, anywhere between, I think, 0.2 and 0.6, might have been even higher, but it was a pretty wide range. But they were saying that the benefit mightn't come for, for another 10 years. And even after the internet in 2000, uh, it was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years before we saw the productivity numbers really pick up. So is it, when you think about that, are you just observing what you're seeing in, in the real economy amongst different econo- different companies? Or how, how do you get confidence in that forecast? Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, you're right, but there, there, there are data's, data series that we can kind of monitor that. Uh, I mean, there is quarterly data on, on productivity. Uh, it uh, actually bounced up very, ni- very nicely to the upside in the second, second quarter, but it can be volatile from even quarter to quarter. Uh, but uh, I'm monitoring that. And uh, as I said, um, I-, I monitor the uh, kind of 20-quarter um, uh, average growth rate at an annual rate to kind of focus on the, on the cycles. And that looks like it's at least it stopped going down, uh, suggesting that. Uh, and, and I'm watching the quits. I mean, obviously, uh, if, if quits are coming down, that should help to st- stabilize the, the labor market. You're not having to retrain uh, new new hires. I'm watching um, real wages. Uh, there's a very strong correlation. Uh, not surprisingly, I'm, this is the one thing I studied in economics, uh, particularly microeconomics, that actually I can see on a chart that makes sense. And that shows the productivity growth rate uh, versus the growth rate in inflation-adjusted uh, re- real compensation. People get paid their their productivity in, in a competitive marketplace. So if you have a relatively competitive marketplace, uh, uh, wa- wages uh, will go up uh, faster than prices uh, as long as uh, that's uh, sustainable and supported by productivity. And so I'm watching on a monthly basis average hourly earnings which is wages, just the wages is not total compensation, but uh, that's what I have on a monthly basis divided by the as, uh, consumption deflator, which is kind of like the CPI. Uh, that, uh, that, that's that been uh, recovering after this year after stalling uh, last year. And then I'm watching um, quarterly, and then I have weekly data uh, indicators of uh, corporate profit margins and corporate profit margins were very weak uh, last year, and they seem to be recovering this year. So uh, you're right, uh, productivity is sort of a squishy uh, uh, topic. Uh, and to you know to say, oh, AI is going to increase productivity is doesn't really help you much. Uh, personally, I've I've uh, tried to use it for for what I do, and uh, it's 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 been useless. Uh, it's just got all these errors, so I. I've just gone back to just Google links and finding the original source and, and, and writing it myself rather than having uh, 
you know, uh, barred or being uh, uh, righted, and then having to uh, fact check the, the 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 AI. See, you don't have ChatGPT writing the, the daily commentary quite yet. No, not yet. Okay. I, not yet. You touched on uh, the 1990s um, experience when we, a moment ago when we were talking about the, the the rate hikes and the commercial real estate challenges. You know, you, you've seen cycles gone back, I don't know, I guess 30, 40 years. People always want to draw parallels and you're talking about this productivity boom, which is, I guess, reminiscent of the late 90s. And then, But equally, there's a the parallel between the early 90s. I, I saw you had a piece a couple of days ago um, looking at the comparing versus the 70s, but highlighting maybe more differences versus similarities. I mean, how do you draw on that experience? There's always parallels, but always differences. When you look at the everything together now from a capital markets, from an economic perspective, each cycle is, is different. What stands out in terms of parallels? Obviously, you touched on 1990. Anything else? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I wrote a, a book back in 2018. It turned out to be longer than it should have been. I think it was like 500 pages or so. Uh, called Predicting the Markets, a professional autobiography. And it basically was everything, uh, almost everything that I learned, um, uh, you know, learning by doing uh, over the past uh, 40 years um, of, of, of my professional career. So uh, in, in some ways, it's a history lesson uh, based on, you know, how I, I, I was sort of, sort of like Forrest Gump. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I was there at, uh, you know, in, at, at, at the time that uh, some very interesting economic history occurred. I'm uh, very fortunate because I think the past 40, 45 years have been absolutely fascinating and um, r- radically different from uh, from anything we've seen in the past. Uh, so I think history is very important uh, to uh, in assessing where we are now. Some things, you know, history maybe uh, no, doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, as they say. And there are a lot of um, use, useful uh, analogies, but um, it's also important to recognize, as you said, you know what's what's different this time. You know, sometimes that's viewed as a jinx when an economist says, "Well, it's different this time." Then you know for sure it's just going to be the same old, same old. And, and usually they're saying it why it's not going to be bad, and it turns out to be bad. Uh, I'm, I may be in that position because I've been arguing that it's a rolling recession. We're not going to have an economy-wide recession. I've been arguing that inflation is turning out to be transitory after all, not persistent, and that uh, productivity is making a comeback. And so, uh, you know, m- maybe I'm just going to be r- wrong about all, all of that. But I, you know, I'm, I, I've acknowledged, I'm trying to be not just optimistic, but realistic. I've acknowledged that there are some significant risks and uh, a, a debt crisis of the nature that uh, people like Ray Dalio and some of the other hedge fund uh, uh people have been talking about is a realistic scenario. It's a, it's a plausible scenario, but it doesn't have to end as badly as, as they think. And things change. I mean, demography changes. So I've also become an amateur demographer uh, over the years. Uh, I'm uh, 73 years old, so I'm uh, a card-carrying member of the baby boom generation uh, here in the U.S. And uh, Many years ago, I had this egotistical view that I was very special, and then I realized there were 75 million people that are just like me, other baby boomers, who were more or less doing the same thing. You know, we got, went out of, out of college. We had this uh, 
mindset that the next thing we did was uh, get a job. Hopefully, we'd work for that company uh, forever, collect a, a pension. Uh, we we moved to the suburb after we got married, have children, and that that was the mindset. Uh, obviously, that's not the mindset of of the younger generation now. Uh, but um, uh, one of the um, insights based on on looking at my life as uh, something that's not unique uh, that I see is I'm I'm what's what's different about me is I'm still working for a living, whereas a lot of my uh, friends are actually retiring, and uh, that's that's a radical change in one's lifestyle. It's like you suddenly think to, to yourself, well, wait a second, I'm not getting a paycheck anymore, so oh that's. Oh, that's why I re- that's why I spent, saved all that money, and now it's, it's time to start spending it. But what if I live a long time, and you know, what if I'm not healthy, and you know, how much do I want to leave the kids? Um, so there's a lot of questions that the baby boomers are are facing now. And but one of the things that's clear is that they have a lot of excess saving. Uh, you know, all this talk about excess saving their pandemic. How about all the retirement assets that have been saved by baby boomers? And there's something called four hundred one ks. In the U.S., where people are actually, once they you know turn in, into their seventies, are, are required to take money out of there. Now they could save it, I guess, in another instrument, uh, but uh, they may very well uh, say, "Oh well, you know, now that I got this check, I'm going to spend it." So the the baby boomers, uh, the retiring ones, my friends are going out to restaurants. They don't cook at home anymore. They they're traveling uh, quite a bit. Uh, they're they're going using the healthcare system quite a bit. This, by the way, explains why the economy has been so resiliently strong, is we've got a lot of demand for workers in the healthcare industry, all-time record high, a lot of demand for workers in the hospitality industry, all-time record high, and so on. Yeah. I think that's very interesting because, I I mean, people often talk about demographics and, you know, just say, oh, aging of the population is deflationary, when, when, as you say, there's so many dynamics and uh, dimensions to this in the sense of, you know, it depends on when people how they forecast how long they expect to live. And, you know, it, as you say, people w- will spend more, but uh, but then equally there is the, uh, the dimension of there will be more demand for, for people to support uh, older people, uh, so healthcare workers, and that's the Charles Goodhart argument. And, uh, and obviously what we're seeing as well from people are tending not to have kind of heart attacks and, and kind of those types of diseases, but more mental um, Alzheimer challenges, etc., and 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 that increases demand for for care workers as well. So, it's it, it's hard to say. Is it is the aging is the baby booming population is that more of an inflationary or deflationary force? Hard to say. Or what would you say? It's and then, um, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, I don't think. I, I I mean, right now it's more of a it's more of a reason why the economy has been resilient. I don't see that uh, it, it's been a source of inflation. The, I think in, with the benefit of hindsight, we will discover that uh, inflation was a fairly transitory phenomenon related to the pandemic. Uh, to, there was too much fiscal and monetary stimulus, but uh, uh, all of that uh, fueled uh, a, a goods buying boom that we discussed earlier in our discussion, uh, and and it got stuck in the ports and so on and so forth. I think where the demographic is much more uh, demographic factors are much more deflationary is in China, which, you know, we haven't really talked about the global dimension, uh, but uh, I've described China as the world's largest n- nursing home. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever be able to go there because, uh, you know, they, they might uh, stop me for questioning wh- why I said things like that about them. But it is, it's the world's largest nursing home. Um, they're 
the demography has turned very geriatric, uh, exacerbated by the one-child policy. And, and now we're seeing that China's slowing down and uh, their property bubble is, uh, is bursting, or at least it's leaking lots, lots of air. And so China's slowed down, uh, which uh, on, the, uh, you know, on the one hand is bad for global economic growth. On the other hand, it's uh, fundamentally deflationary, which helps to, keep our, to bring our inflation down, particularly in the, in the goods market. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, um, it has been a, a big, I suppose, a big theme is this potential Japanification of, of, of China. Would you go that far in terms of the, the outlook uh, over the next couple of decades? Do you see that kind of deflationary impulse becoming embedded? Well, I mean, the, 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 the Chinese government, uh, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, to be exact, is really the, 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 the source of, of China's problems. I mean, China's prosperity really occurred when the Chinese Communist Party kind of stood back and let capitalism uh, work. Uh, but they've been squelching that uh, of late, and the Chinese Communist Party imposed the one-child policy that now they're, is, is coming back to haunt them. Now, now they've tried to, to provide incentives for people to have children, and it's just not, not, they're, it's not working. And so uh, I think that the demographic uh, prospects for, for China are pretty grim. Uh, in, in some ways, China's just a big version of Japan. Japan's also got a very geriatric uh, d- demographic profile. Uh, things aren't terrible in Japan. Uh, they've got a pretty good standard of living, uh, but uh, they they don't have a young uh, population that uh, you know will will stimulate uh, growth uh, in the future. And so Ch- China has that same problem. And outside of China, like obviously there tends to be as much optimism now, maybe about the outlook in India versus pessimism in China, and and in some of the other emerging markets benefiting from maybe deglobalization. People looking at Mexico, Vietnam, areas like that. Do you think that's uh, a, an opportunity for investors? Well, interestingly, thanks to uh, Zoom technology and all that, uh, f- over the past uh, several months, I've, I've actually been doing a, a regular uh, uh, discussion with CNBC India. And so as a, as a result, to make sure that I'm, you know, if uh, they ask me a question, I have s- some knowledge of what's going on in India. I've been following that more. And uh yeah, India's got a young population. Uh, that you know, they, they speak English, which is is good for doing business with the United States, uh, Australia, and other ca- Canadian, uh, other um, uh, English speaking uh, areas of the of the world. They are working on infrastructure. That's that's where China has them beat. China has great infrastructure. Uh, China has uh, things organized remarkably sensibly when it comes to uh, it, the way industries uh, can get uh, parts and. Uh, and so on. Uh, so India has got a long ways to, to do all that, but in, India is increasingly being viewed as an alternative to uh, to, to China. Uh, but so is the United States. I mean, we, we've seen uh, in the United States, there's data on uh, construction of manufacturing facilities, and it's gone straight up. Uh, we're, we're building more manufacturing here because of onshoring, as, 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 as the word goes. And onshoring's... Um, been the reaction to the increasing tensions between the United States and China. It's been a reaction to the pandemic. And it's also um, shows that technology is now available to replace uh, labor. Labor is not so cheap even in China anymore. It's not available. Uh, maybe it's still relatively cheap in India, but uh, all in all, uh, technology is allowing uh, American manufacturing to come back, uh, even if we don't have um, the, the workforce that is necessary to run uh, factories because now we've got robotics and automation. 
I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to see that Elon Musk is working in all these technologies and one of, one of his adventures is robotics. And, um, these, these robots, I've seen a video of it, look like they're being trained to uh, build cars. Okay. Um, well, that's interesting. I mean, you touched on a little bit earlier, corporate profit margins, how they were, um, came, but came down a little bit last year, seem to be improving this year. So, I mean, in that context, I mean, just bringing the discussion maybe towards the outlook for, for equities, you're talking about the, the onshoring, which you would have thought maybe might push up uh, prices uh, and costs for companies. If Presumably, if they went off, offshore for cheaper costs by bringing it onshore, it's more resilient uh, uh, chains, but but maybe at a higher cost. So how do you see the, the, the valuation perspective and uh, the outlook for equities? Uh, you know, we, we, we started off with a relatively... Uh pessimistic discussion of, uh, of a potential uh, debt crisis. Uh, so um, with the proviso that I'm uh, keeping an eye on uh, the 10-year bond yield to see what my friends, the bond vigilantes, are going to do, I, I think um, you know, there, there is a, uh, an optimistic scenario here. I think uh, it's, it's actually my base case for now. I'm, uh, I'm assigning a 75% uh, probability to a continuation of uh, rolling recession with inflation coming down uh, and uh, things uh, stabilizing here uh, so the the bond yield doesn't kind of shoot up above five uh, percent is uh, a requirement of this uh, relatively happy scenario uh, uh, earnings uh, have turned out to be uh, better this year than others expected uh, we actually uh, got it right uh, because we didn't uh, have an economy-wide recession, uh, and we think that earnings are going to continue to improve uh, next year, so the the earnings outlook uh, I think suggests that uh, we've we're still in a bull market. That uh, the bull market started on October twelfth of last year. At the end of October last year, from my toot my own horn, um, I said that I thought that was the low, and that that we were in a bull market, and uh, it, it looked pretty good until July thirty first. And then uh, we've had, a, I think, a correction uh, since then. I don't think it's uh, a beginning of a new bear market. I don't think it's a resumption of the old bear market. But, uh, you know, there's that 25% that I'm subjectively assigning to the possibility of a hard landing uh, uh, recession. And I've recently actually raised, raised that from 15 to 25%. So I'm, I'm sensitive to, to uh, the risks. With regards to valuation, um, I think we just have to be, uh, re, you know, we just have to factor in that the, I call them the uh, mega cap eight. Some people call them the magnificent seven. Uh, the, you know, the, the big uh, tech companies uh, that uh, account for 25% of the market capitalization of the S&P 500, they're not going away. Uh, these, these, are very, these are very profitable uh, companies. Uh, they're doing extremely well. And so they're going to continue to account for 25, maybe 30% of the S&P uh, 500. And they have high valuation multiples. Uh, they try to bring those multiples down, then they, rebound, they rebounded somewhat. Uh, so I think um, you have to factor that in. Uh, but when you look at the market, then you really look, have to look at the mega cap eight versus uh, the, the rest of the market in terms of valuation. And the valuation of the market excluding the mega cap eight right now is around 15, which isn't dirt cheap. It's about kind of kind of fair value, but it does suggest that there are opportunities in the marketplace. Uh, we continue to like energy. I know financials uh, hasn't been uh, doing well this year, but financials uh, 
the, the big cap financials look quite good. In some ways, they're technology companies because uh, they're spending billions of dollars uh, on uh, technology. Technology itself, IT, is, uh, is, is a place where we want to continue to have exposure. So, uh, you know, we're aware of the, um, the doomsday scenarios. We're aware of the debt crisis scenarios. Like, I, you know, if you wanted to spend a whole hour saying, okay, let's depress everybody and just talk about how everything could go wrong, I, I know that story, story pretty well. Uh, I always uh, point out that the pessimists don't seem to know my story very well, which is the more optimistic one. And I mean, you talk about kind of the mega caps versus the rest. And then if you were to look at outside the US versus the US, outside the US, the valuations look more attractive. But then the question is, will the, will the earnings growth be as strong? What's your perspective on that? Well, I've I've been in uh, the stay home camp uh, from the vantage point of uh, American investors. Uh, and the, the, what that means for global investors is you want to overweight the US. I've been saying that for quite quite. Uh, some time here, maybe I'll overstay my welcome, but um, I'm still in this uh, stay home, overweight the U.S. It doesn't mean don't invest overseas. It just means uh, overweight the U.S. Uh, Europe has some real challenges. China has some real challenges. Um, maybe there's some opportunities in Japan, maybe some opportunities in India and Brazil. But uh, in terms of liquidity, in terms of diversification, uh, rule of law, uh, transparency. Um, the U.S. has a lot going for it, and it's still, um, a, 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 you know, the world's largest uh, economy uh, with the world's most dynamic technologies, uh, with a consumer that was born to shop. <laughs> so I, I would continue to overweight the U.S. Very good. Well, I think we're just coming up in time, so we we always kind of just wrap up by getting uh, some perspective uh, advice, maybe for people coming into the markets, younger people starting off as to things to do or read. Obviously, you've been through everything in the markets. What, what would your advice be to people uh, to, to? Well, if, if I had, you know, if I, if I was starting all over again, I would have saved more, even if that meant uh, kind of reducing my standard of living. And I would have put it in high quality dividend yielding stocks, uh, companies that have been uh, around for a long time that have been growing their dividends, uh, pay, paying more uh, year after year, and uh, put, put them away and not get involved in the day-to-day -day, um, battles that we have in the, in the financial markets. You can really uh, get whipsawed around uh, uh, quite a bit in, in, in the stock market and not even in the bond market. I, I think you have to buy quality, buy uh, securities that are giving you a, a good uh, return, uh, and then just put them away, and and, and uh, you know get, uh, try to get some peace of mind because uh, you know if, if you're try to trade this mar these markets, it's, it can be quite tough, uh, very difficult on you for an individual investor. Very good, good, good advice, I'm sure. Well, Ed, thanks very much. This has been a tremendous conversation. Thanks very much for for doing this today. So make sure make sure to follow Ed's work because, as you can tell from today's conversation, we're living in a fast moving global macro world, and it's more important than ever than ever to stay well informed. So from all of us here on Top Traders Unplugged, thank you and uh, we'll be back soon with more episodes. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. 
We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.